0: past remembering web page TV Cream was literally just one page called The Archive with a couple of photos of Fred Harris. I'm Tim Worthington and joining me today is someone who knows that page only too well because it was him that originally uploaded it. It's animator stroke writer Phil Norman. Phil what are you up to and where can we find it? Well
1: by day I create well contribute to the creation of a large swathe of TV that will probably end up on whatever the equivalent of this podcast is in 30 years time or probably will be totally forgotten. Otherwise I'd sort of write for various things including the uh, recently launched TV Years magazine available in all good news agents although I was was in a very mediocre news agent that had it as well.
0: Well yes and TV Years comes highly recommended but one thing that isn't covered in it is the theme tune to the Kenny Effort television show which is done by this lot. (laughs)
2: Expecting you here tonight, sh 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 off. sh 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 dance? sh 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 it
0: Well, some fine mid-70s pop there, but you're probably scratching your heads and thinking, what was that? So, Phil, tell us what that was.
1: Oh, uh, well, that was Fox with s s single Bed, as the official title goes. Three S's separated by hyphens. Well, this is not so obscure these days, thanks to the kind of combined efforts of the uh, BBC4 Top of the Pops repeats and Ben Goldacre on Twitter. But uh, for the 30 years before that, it was one of these obscure things that kind of I discovered Biosmosis, because originally I heard it probably on Radio 1 on Sundays, which in the early 80s was kind of the equivalent of Radio 2 on Sundays is today. You know, they play they play current singles, but they would play anything from the last 20 years as well on Noel Edmund's show and things like that. I'd hear this weird song which was kind of it it was from the glam era but it's not glam it kind of gets lumped in with glam because of the costumes of the various participants but it's it always stuck out it's one of those songs where every element is is wrong in some way you've got the kind of at the bottom you've got the bass line is kind of tripping over the guitar in this kind of club-footed sort of anti-anti-funk
3: kind of rhythm
1: you've got these random synth synthesizer stabs these high-pitched synthesizer stabs that feel like a kind of rent-a-ghost materialization happening and then at the end of the chorus you've got this ominous kind of ufo bass swoosh synthesizer noise coming in for no reason and then on top of all that of course you've got the vocal stylings of nusha fox who despite as i late much later found out coming from australia affects this kind of Marlena Dietrich on helium vocal delivery for most of the song. So everything is kind of goofy, everything kind of is off kilter, nothing kind of should fit together, but it does. It's a brilliant single that's kind of formed of wrongness. Yeah, so I, I kind of knew this single. I didn't know who it was by because radio one of those those days very sloppy about back announcing things and my attention span probably didn't last through you know the next couple of songs to find out what it was later i discovered that fox were an entity when i saw a late 80s i think tv screening of side by side which is one of those glam films where they've kind of thought right glam's popular let's get mud and it's always mud in these things (laughs) (laughs) mud will always game for anything Clearly, and a couple of other glam artists and let's film their performances, and then let's get a couple of elderly character actors in this case, Terry Thomas was in it, and uh, Barry Humphreys, bizarrely and let's let's get some threadbare plot, which I think in this case was there were two rival nightclubs next to each other side by side, if you will, who uh, were obviously I think they were, were they based in Soho, I think. They are supposed to be based in Soho. And uh, they were both rival nightclubs. So they both in trouble. And they had to get out from the kind of post-war era that they were stuck in by hiring some hip new glam acts. And that was the entire extent of the plot. I don't remember what happened apart from the, the, the two clubs were kind of knocked through forcibly in the kind of anarchic final scene. Oh, no, there's one scene where they go up to uh, the Bieber rooftop restaurant and everyone's sat in peacock chairs. Which is quite glamorous, but then the only reason they're up there is to introduce Joe Baker, the uh, kind of northern nightclub comedian, which kind of takes the glamour levels right back down again. <laughs> that's what's the case in these things. Fox had a cameo in that thing, just playing one song, which was the Imagine Me, Imagine You, not Single Bed. And they were playing it in somebody's gazebo for some reason. And so I kind of put two and two together because, you know, Noosh's vocals were kind of obviously from the same thing. So I thought, oh, yeah, that's Fox. And then, you know, later on, the gaps were kind of filled in in their quite amazing career.
0: Well, I find it quite interesting that there is this kind of weird black hole of mid-70s pop. I think it's something to do with the fact that the sort of thing now is to play down... The impact that punk had, you know, and go a bit Dominic Sandbrook and say, oh, it's just about three people in London and it didn't change anything. The fact is, it did change a lot of things. And I think a lot of decent pop music, not the stuff that punk was trying to replace, but the sort of stuff that glamour filled through to kind of fell by the wayside and I think Fox were very much part of that because you can see very faint echoes of sort of the whole Roxy music ethos in what they were doing just quite watered down really but I think it didn't help that a lot of the bands that were caught in that sort of vortex like Fox like the Dooleys, like I suppose later period Cockney Rebel they hung around for years afterwards because I mainly associate bands like that with being on Checkers Plays Pop mm-hmm. and thinking who are they? And then Keith Checkman say, great to see them back again. They (laughs) just didn't fit into the early 80s at all. And I think that kind of put people off rediscovering these bands as well. I mean, there is famously, I mean, I wouldn't call this a pop classic or lump it in with these bands, but there was a number one single in, I think it was 76, Mississippi by Pussycat, which very few people seem to have ever heard. And I know I've heard, but I can't tell you anything about it.
1: Yeah, it's just the fact that everyone kind of thinks, you know, oh, 70s was either prog very long albums or glam and there was nothing in between but there was kind of there was everything in between you know it's one of those things where the era gets kind of simplified into like prog stroke glam then everything's punk. And, but no, every, you know, there was there was this stuff kind of floating around that was, it, it wasn't immune to the fashions, obviously. I mean, the, the thing about Fox, obviously, the, the, the main man behind Fox in terms of writing and production was Kenny Young, who kind of goes right back to, you know, he had an early hit writing uh, Under the Boardwalk for the Drifters. He wrote Captain of Your Ship for Reparata and the Runs. I think he had a hand in writing I Know Carida" as well. You know, even with Fox, you know, you go right from single bed through to, as you say, you know, the Kenny Everett. I like electro people, which is clearly Kenny Young kind of going, well, you know, the Gary Newman kind of human league thing. He's kind of going, yeah, I'll get in with that. And he, do- and he does it rather well, I think. He's one of those people who's like kind of he's like the living repudiation of that kind of almost mojo magazine musical idea of everyone's got their own era or genre and they should just stick to that and plough that and not kind of be a dilettante and you know try different things
0: well i've got to pose the interesting question now which is those people who do know about fox it's mainly about the singles you know either this a single bed or only you can seems to be quite a popular one i know that turns up in a lot of compilations these days is there much beyond the singles is worth investigating
1: yeah there is it kind of um it gets interesting I would
0: say. <laughs> yeah you've got those
1: like the three singles you know single bed only you can imagine me imagine you single bed is i would say the most striking of them but they're all kind of Of that kind of piece Then obviously you've got the Kenny Everett theme Which is a different thing again Beyond that you've got, I mean They did a song called Love Ship Which kind of was briefly famous As a kind of latter day jingle for Radio Caroline Uh, And appropriately enough it turns into the theme From Noah and Nelly halfway through (laughs) You've got a few things like that You've got He's got magic Which is Bounces up and down Oh yeah And later on You've got um Dancing with an alien Which was done I think after I like electro people So we're talking like 82 maybe 83 here In which for a start, the introduction is, if you listen to it, is the most early 80s introduction you can imagine, with various kind of synth bits. And Nusha Fox, for once, kind of deviates from her standard kind of Marlena Dietrich vocals. And at one point, I swear she's doing a David Bowie impression. I just saw recently, when I was looking stuff up again, on YouTube, there's a performance on, I think, is it—is it the Dutch show? It's called Top Hop. Top Pop? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that Top Hop. Yeah. The Top Hop's Pop Show, yeah. And they do... I think it's only you can they're singing and Nusha's got the full on kind of Princess Leia award ceremony at the end of Star Wars dress on. And the rest of the band is standing in what I can only describe as Salvador Dali scale set. It's just this weird kind of soft Grand Prix track for some reason. I don't know if that's ever explained. I don't, don't know what has got to do with the song. Uh, but yeah, kind of oddness kind of followed them around a bit.
0: Well sticking with very early 80s sounds, although I think it was actually late 70s, we're moving on to your next choice now, which sounds like it's performed by some electro people that if you're of a nervous disposition you might not like. <laughs>
2: leap frog
0: Okay, well, I know that sounds like the idemp from a pre video nasty, but it's not actually that. Phil, what was that the intro to?
1: That was from Leapfrog, which was an ATV educational programme from kind of the, the sort of late 70s, early 80s kind of interchange, if you will. I think I probably must have seen Leapfrog. When I was off school sick, because I was probably a little too young for it, maybe by about a year, I certainly remember sitting through its kind of sequel, which was called Basic Maths in school. And it was one of those shows that was kind of a product of quote-unquote new thinking in education that, that kind of... Took place in kind of the 60s and 70s, which was basically saying, all right, well, we're going to do away with this thing where the teacher just comes in and everyone's sat at a desk and we do a straight lecture, saying, you know, this, you learn this, learn this, learn this, da 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 da. We'll do, you know, we'll do something that encourages the creativity uh, and you know and the uh, the imaginations of the children. By just giving them, without any explanation, a series of kind of weird little sketches and animations and kind of musical interludes, which will demonstrate a uh, a principle of basic maths or language, because I think LeapFrog did a bit of both. The upshot of this was that you had this kind of bizarre, and for some children, as I recall, rather terrifying... I remember definitely one young girl kind of asked after the first broadcast you know when we've all shuffled into the TV room she asked that she might not see these things because you know it obviously traumatized her somewhat So you just had the this this kind of barrage of weird kind of audio visual snippets that you were supposed to kind of subliminally take in something about number lines or square numbers from. That just kind of uh, were kind of fired at you for like 15 or 20 minutes and then you shuffled out of the TV room and went mm, okay I suppose I've learnt something there I don't know what's going on. Obviously Leapfrog and Basic Maths had Fred Harrison which was obviously the kind of like a, a welcome focal point of familiarity but apart from that it was just odd and you know the main thing that I, another thing that I found out later that kind of had an effect on me was the music which was mainly done by uh, a guy called Ron Geesin, who I had no idea about before, and then I later found out that he's... He had a lot to do with, like, prog people like uh, Roger Waters. He did, he, did, he, did an, he did a couple of weird albums with him. But he just, in the 70s, I'm not sure if he was commissioned for Leapfrog, or they just used music that he'd already done. But yeah, he just did all this weird stuff that was kind of slightly bluesy, slightly proggy, very synthy, kind of often very echoey. And it just had this, it was appealing in a way, but it was also quite terrifying. You know, this, this that kind that kind of weird kind of sort of push-pull effect. Yeah, so I, I, I knew very little about him. Well, I knew nothing about him, obviously, when I was a very small child. But, you know, it, I gradually kind of found out a few more things about him and just, yeah, just this... Very weird kind of audio-visual combination just kind of stuck with me. I'm not sure I learnt a single thing from it but, you know, it, it kind of stuck in my head.
0: Just to digress for a second, that's given me a weird link back into my link into this, which is, I get the impression that Ron Geeson was specially commissioned for Leapfrog, because they appear to say Leapfrog in that Sting, but a lot of his music was, like you say, used in weird places, including in the trailer for Snuff, the famous, like, <laughs> hoax death on camera film from the 70s, which I believe he didn't know anything about it being used in that, but of course that was one of the, the famous video nasties, but ICBC school shows around this time did have a habit of going a bit weird i I particularly remember nobody ever mentioned this it's a show called middle english it was kind of an experimental storytelling thing kind of trying to engage your brain and thinking in different ways there's all kinds of things like you know each one would have a different kind of narrator who i guess were probably famous writers though i had no idea about that at the time who would kind of intercede in these weird scary stories and say things like, no, I could take it in, you know, this direction or that direction. I'm going to see what happens. To me, that was really weird, but compulsively weird.
1: Yeah, I mean, especially maths programmes, I think, because before Leapfrog and everything else, although they were, I think they kind of carried on concurrently, you had things like Figure It Out, which was another thing with Fred Harris that was on the BBC, which is more a conventional kind of comedy sketches, but involving, you know, rounding up and things like that. Maths show as well, which everyone... Well, a lot of people remember for the Doctor Ware parodies with Tony Hughes. Yeah, there were there were there were all these little kind of weird things. I mean, educational TV anyway had a bizarre tone. I mean, even the conventional things like Experiment, which you know obviously you look around you, the first series was based on, you know, had that very sort of stentorian tone where you never saw anyone's face. And, like, Leaprop had the same kind of thing. It was kind of impersonal in a strange way.
0: With an odd Gary Newman aesthetic.
1: Yes.
0: (laughs) Well, the main thing that sticks in my mind about it, because I have so many memories of him being in lots of things long before the role he became most famous for. But Sylvester McCoy, or rather Sylvester McCoy, as he was at that point, if I remember rightly, filmed inserts in Leapfrog following some kind of mystery about I don't know, right angles or something or isosceles triangles.
1: Yeah, he was in it. I think Ben Benison was in a few episodes as well. They kinda of, they kinda of shuffled the personnel around. I don't was that Ron that was probably Ron Geese in soundtrack as well. So you you had some kind of speeded up slapstick done in um, a park somewhere to this bizarre kind of music that sound like it was recorded in a kind of dripping kind of stalactite cave because he turned up the reverb so high it's like what the fucking hell is this once you'd heard the, the theme tune basically you were set up to be kind of freaked out by just everything that happened in the next kind of 20 minutes.
0: Well, yeah, and I have read, I don't know how correct this is, that basic maths was basically, they were told, more or less told, don't do Leapfrog like Leapfrog again, please, and took off all the weird edges. And it was more or less a continuation of it, but kind of toned down.
1: Yeah, it's like, because the theme tune from Basic Maths is sort of like Leapfrog, but cleaned up a bit. You know, it's like Norman Cooks remixed it and cleaned it up for the pop market slightly. Yeah, Basic Maths was kind of a bit more focused. It still had these bizarre kind of unexplained animations where some squares would just appear to, a, you know, this this harsh harmonica and, and, and this bizarre synth. And they just sort of float around the screen, in and out, in different shapes, and then vanish. And they go... like that. And you'd think, what was I supposed to learn there? Something about symmetry, possibly?
0: Well, I've got to say, I'd not thought about this until just now, when I was actually watching some clips of Leapfrog. You've got a theme tune, with a kind of vocoded synth voice. You've got Fred Harris in a sort of, kind of industrial space-age jumpsuit. Is that reminding you of anything that appeared shortly afterwards?
1: yeah, well', stick a hard hat on him and then put him on his <laughs> little uh mobil- proto mobility scooters. and yeah it's chocker block isn't it and chocker block was it was the friendly to camera presentation of the the kind of standard bbc children preschool children's program but there was there was obviously something a bit odd about that i mean what was happening in
0: this factory for god's sake it was something to do with turning around the rocker blocks and a across i can't remember yeah. <laughs> i i know i saw all of them lots of times and i still don't really know what was happening in it apart from fred harris dressed as a pepper pot from monty python dancing with a cardboard pig which <laughs> it's one of those images that stays with you forever Okay, we're moving on to only slightly more well-realised animation. Let's just have a listen to it. I'm sure it'll bring back some memories.
3: We wish you a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year! We buttermen, would like to say thanks to all those who have helped make Country Life Butter such a success. So firstly, for you dairy farmers and your lovely cows...
2: Oh, we are the lads from Country Life and you can't put a better bit of butter on your knife if you haven't any. You have
0: a word okay, well, it's a bit early for a Christmas greeting from, morning. quote, The Butter Men. But, Phil, what was in the Country Life Christmas box?
1: Oh, man. Well, this was um this was one of those weird kind of... Adverts that kind of you only got around Christmas that straddled an entire commercial break, you know, like the like the Woolworths extravaganzas where they would line up a bunch of celebrities, give them each a product to flog and just like take over an entire break. But this was different because this was it was an advert for butter, but it was also an advert for the adverts for butter. You would had for a few years you'd had I forget that was it, it was the Wurzels, wasn't it? It wasn't the Yetis or something like that. It was the Wurzels doing the soundtrack. Basically singing this uh slightly adapted popular English folk song, Flogging Country Life Butter. And you had these four animated kind of homunculi made out of the same stuff, singing about how they love to eat country life butter, which is obviously the simultaneously the main constituent of their own bodies. <laughs> no, you don't think about that too much, obviously. But then, apparently, it was in 1979 the uh, the Christmas compilation was made. But I must have seen it a couple of years later because I seem to associate it with the same Christmas that the black hole was shown on ITV as the big Christmas film. In you know, sort of um, in the evening, they introduced this compilation of their best adverts, and they just said, "For all you mums, here is something for you." And they show an advert as if it was their gift to you. They're going <laughs> to butter at you again. And I was very young at this time, and it kind of started a kind of change in my attitude to advertising because before as a very young child i thought adverts were clearly the best thing on tv because they were colorful they were noisy they had music and they fitted my attention span perfectly so you know i'd start sort of tape recording the gaps in the adverts more than the programs themselves but yeah but once i saw this i kind of thought that's a bit much, isn't it? You know, why, why are you openly celebrating these adverts that we've seen five hundred times before, anyway, in this kind of compilation? And I don't know. I wasn't. I didn't suddenly overnight turn into this kind of anti-capitalist cynic. But it was kind of it was just the very first knockings of that's not as brilliant as you say it is. But yeah, the more you think about the country life that I'm in situation anyway, the, the more horrible it gets. Apart from the kind of vague cannibalistic overtones, you had what would now be seen as extremely off colour um Oh she likes that, don't she? She gets that all the time. <laughs> it's kind of horrible innuendo. Which kind of suggested that the buttermen were just going around having their way with these (laughs) houses it's some kind of horrible emulsified kind of cross between last tango in Paris and straw dogs (laughs) Gangs of
0: four kind of arriving at these houses it's just how can I take this one off the list well the thing (laughs) That alarms me about it. Watching it now, is obviously it runs for about three minutes or something, but it's the kind of thing where when you're a kid, that length of time seems to go on forever. Especially yeah. if you're not expecting them to keep coming back with encores and say, "Oh, shall we do another one for you?" And like, it just it to kind of go stretches on into infinity. You've just been sat there thinking, "Will the Ralph Bashke Lord of the Rings ever come back on?"
1: Oh God, yeah, and, and also every advert starts with that sort of descending accordion. <laughs> Not again.
0: What well, do you, you know who actually wrote the music for that?
1: No, I don't. No.
0: I love this. It was a gentleman called Ken Jones, where you talk about mad career paths. He starts off producing the zombies in the 60s. He then goes into film and TV music. I think he did the music with a two-way stretch. He wrote the themes for It's Marty and Sykes. Oh, and these... then, around the time that the Christmas box went out, he did the theme to an ITV sitcom, which I know you have some thoughts about. Can you guess what it was?
1: 1979?
0: Oh, no, you might not be very H-A-P-P-Y when you figure out what it is.
1: Oh, did he do the titles to
0: that? He did. Excellent. Only When I Laugh. The most <laughs> terrifying sitcom theme ever.
1: God, yeah, with James Boland being dragged through the doors. Yeah, yeah. I know we're going off topic a bit, but yeah, the uh, Only When I Laugh. I remember they were kind of repeated on one of the former gold channels like maybe about 12 years ago and some of them were very bizarre because i remember watching it and i remember one that i kind of remembered almost verbatim which is the one where um figgis james Bolam's character has to have a blood transfusion and the only person in the entire hospital with a blood type matching him, is Peter Bowles' his character. So James Boland spends the rest of the episode panicking that he won't be taken seriously by the shop stewards at his place of work, because he's now technically... 5% <laughs> or- <laughs> there was another one, which was kind of... I don't know what Eric Chappell's personal feelings on smoking were, but there was, a, there was this kind of weird, very vehemently anti-smoking episode where obviously Figgis and Glover are lighting up and they persuade Norman Binns to start smoking as well. So they're all sitting there in hospital smoking fags, which I don't know how realistic that was even at the time. And then Richard Wilson's doctor comes in and delivers a very heartfelt and serious lecture about the dangers of smoking. And, you know, it's like the comedy is kind of switched off for this message, which is kind of, you know, it's admirable, but it's very, that was very weird for the time.
0: Well, to bring us back to the Country Life Christmas box, I mean, I am quite obsessed with the idea of advertising about advertising. It almost makes me think of, I've never understood this, out there there are examples, genuine examples, of a BBC continuity slide of the BBC School's Diamond. I thought, what the hell was that used for, you know, follow shortly, follow shortly? <laughs> I, don't, I don't get that at all, but there is a thing about it. I remember they tried to, which insurance company was it that had We Want to Be Together? Was
1: it Prudential or something? Yes, or...
0: it was. Yeah, when they did the second round of them, there were bus stop adverts saying, will they stay together, tune in to ITV at 8pm tonight and find out. And like, you don't advertise an advert. That's just craziness. I...
1: Surely there was only one advert in the first place, wasn't there? The one, You know, the one where Mark Williams is banging on about all the things he wants, you know, all the the humdrum things he likes, and Joe Unwin's silently going, no, I want a world cruise and stuff like that.
0: Yeah, but it was vitally important you saw this sequel that nobody asked for. <laughs> nobody <laughs> I mean, wants to find out what happened to Clifford the Dragon from the Listerine advert and how his date went. So
1: <laughs> I know, yeah. I mean, yeah, you know, it's I suppose things like the Blend couple kind of... Got into popular folklore and then they capitalised on it. But yeah, some of them tried to do it reverse, you know, and kind of reverse engineer a kind of popular thing. You know, everyone's talking about this. It's like, no, they're not. Later on in the 90s, it's like they turned, you know, adverts turned into programmes, didn't they? Because you had things like The Baldy Man with Gregor Fisher which was taken off his Hamlet cigarette advert. Oh, yes! <laughs> it itself was just a sketch on naked video that they'd ripped off for the advert anyway. But then it was turned back into like a sort of kind of sub-Mr. Bean programme, wasn't it?
0: Well, and there was also, I've never been clear on this, I mean, I should go and look at Jem Roberts' new book, which is just over there, but did the Fry and Laurie Alliance and Leicester kind of predate a bit of Fry and Laurie? Because that basically is those adverts made into a program.
1: It wasn't Hugh Laurie's character was called Mostyn in those, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah. So there, yeah. There's some link there, yeah. A pretty tidy sum. And um, what was that? What was the program with the the craft Philadelphia girls on Channel Four? Six thirty something. That was it, because it was on at half. <laughs> it existed at the same time as thirty something. That was just them sat at a desk doing kind of showbiz gossip or something, as far as I can recall.
0: And yet still no sitcom spin-off for the operatic bacon foil turkey and chef, sadly. <laughs> okay, well, I know you're dying to get away from this advert, so uh, let's have a nice bit of hip-hop instead. Is that you? <sighs> oh, an empty
2: place. Oh, I mm. love it. A perfect place to practice the exciting sight mm-hmm. uh, of humming. Mm. <laughs> Hum along, if you can't sing along, hum along,
1: hum along, if you can't sing along, you hum along, hum along, if you can't sing along, hum along, hum along, yeah, hum along with X, hmm, uh.
3: very interesting this thing, coming and drumming humming birds with wings and feathers of the same, so we flock much
1: plus rock, so on and so such, We'll play
0: okay, well that's the start of a record that i pretty much forgotten about until now, and it's not like I didn't hear it quite a bit at the time. Phil, tell us more about Humrush Rush by KMD.
1: Now this is one of those records that appeared in in in, in the glut of new age hip hop that came after Della Soul's first LP. It came out in I remember hearing kind of the early summer of 1991, so it was kind of where you know a, you know a tribe called quest and people like that were kind of at their peak especially you know especially in this country this single came out it it was a double a side i think the other one was to me which was slightly more musically conventional but it still had sesame street samples on and i just remember listening to this and thinking these people are going to be the next dela soul because a i thought it was brilliant and b it was kind of it was just sort of novelty ish enough to get into the charts because they I, I think there still had to be at that time a kind of novelty element to hip-hop i mean you had things you know, obviously you know in in like the mid 80s you'd had love Bug starsky you'd had the real roxanne which was sort of they were kind of bordering on they were both they were both genuine sort of hip-hop acts but they the, those singles were kind of arguably tending towards the kind of you know novelty end of the genre and then you had, obviously, Eric B. and Rakim's paid in full did really well with the Cold Cut remix, which I kind of had mixed feelings about, because obviously, you know, in many respects, it was really good, but it kind of, I, don't know, I was thinking places it kind of overdid the kind of novel, we, here we are putting novelty samples into everything. And also I seem to recall there was a Radio 4 documentary, probably presented by Jeff Young at the time, where uh, one of Cold Cut came on and, and they talked about you know the bang on a drum or is it ring a ding the the kind of that play school drumming song Oh,
0: bang on the drum yes yeah
1: which obviously was a masterstroke you know that's brilliant so you know he's talking about that and you know when which i didn't realize at the time so I thought, oh, that's brilliant but then he said of course you know the thing about the original paid in fours it's quite a boring song really so he livened it up and i thought what? what? Don't really get to say that, you know. It's a bit like sort of someone from Jive Bunny going, "Well, you think think about Chubby Checker was he didn't half go on?" <laughs> yeah. So anyway, yeah. So hip hop was getting into at least the lower reaches of the top forty, but they seen there had to be a sort of something, you know, to lift it out of the ordinary and and be, if not novelty, then kind of. Ear catching, let's say, to get it into the charts. And obviously, this, based on, I I don't know where they got the Sesame Street sample from. as I presume it's from an edition of a program and not a record because I've never encountered it anywhere else. And everything else, and it just fitted perfectly. You know, you've got this humming, everything else is really good. You know, Uh, the break's really good. And then you've got this kind of piano going over the top. And I just thought, yeah, this is going to be huge. And, you know, because. I've got a, probably the worst track record of predicting what's going to be popular. I don't, I don't know where it got to. It may have got into the top 75. I, re, I seem to remember, you say you heard it a few times. I recall hearing John Peel playing it a couple of times. I don't think it went to either of Radio 1's playlists at the time. I, know, I never heard it anywhere else.
0: was on the evening session a couple of times, I seem to remember. But I've got a theory about why it didn't take off, which is... You know, you, obviously, as you point out, the Tribe Called Quest, and so on, Queen Latifah were kind of at the height around then. But there were a lot of copyists around, and I think they muddied the waters a lot for anyone who because the three main ones that I can think of were PM Dawn, who were a bit too pretentious and got up a lot of people's noses. Definition of Sound, who, they have one really good song, but it seems to be the only song they had, and they just seem to keep doing it again and again and again. And the Dream Warriors, who, I love my definition of Boombastic jazz style, I love Ludie, and I love Wash Your Face In My Sink, but that album stinks. I'm sure a lot of people bought it and were hugely disappointed, and that kind of soured, you know, the relationship people had towards the Daisy Age rap thing, and then obviously by then, you know, it was off in a whole new direction. I did do some research into it, found out that KMD immediately followed this, you know, kind of happy-clappy first album, with something the record label wouldn't release, because it was so
1: deliberately offensive oh my god yeah and yeah it was it, it eventually came out a few you know a few years after it should have done when obviously taste had moved on entirely so it was doomed and i, re- I remember being, thinking uh, a am i curious enough to go back and get this album and b am i ever going to be able to buy this from a shop it was just like the title and the out a- and the sleeve artwork which you c- can be looked up online quite easily it's, it's just like i'm not, I, i'm not going to ask for that and the shop it's just not it's <laughs> not happening that was them basically committing commercial suicide i think unfortunately after that one of them was killed in like a road accident or something well, like that looking back on it 1991 that was clearly the last knockings of this kind of brilliant era of hip hop that started maybe in 98, 89, where there was just so many there were just so many great albums coming out and great singles. It was just like a really kind of fertile period.
0: I should just say, I bet you've forgotten about this, but I know you've always been willing to fight the cause of this single because do you remember the book that never happened TV Cream's official top 40
1: yes they ve- there's
0: no there's no bad conspiracy behind it for anyone listening it was just a publisher took it on and then dropped it when they didn't think it was financially viable but you nominated this for the official top 40
1: oh god did I yes oh well yeah well that was that didn't have a chance of getting in
0: no <laughs> it, 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 I, I was in charge of the final list and it made the final list so oh, number 39 it was what was it ahead of it was head of the lady in red which is in there because a lot of people seem to think it should be represented and i thought it should be represented by being the very bottom of the pile so there you go oh
1: well fair enough yeah it's ahead of that it got a decent sort of chart position in some sense
0: okay well we're going to leave decent music behind for your next choice very much so we're just represented by this Okay, well, I'm just going to let
1: you explain that, Phil. Yeah, well, this was one of the wonderful musical numbers from a 1987 BBC One drama called Body Contact. This was kind of one of a sort of mini-cycle of dramas that kind of appeared in, well, in 1987, really. As far as I can work out, they were kind of, it, it was based on the success of things like Life and Loves of a She-Devil, uh, and The Seeing Detective, and things like that in the mid-'80s, where, uh, you know, the, the, these kind of, these very sort of, Unusual, personal, and obviously incredibly well written dramas that had a kind of slightly uh, dark gothic edge to them as well and, and upset Mary Whitehouse and the powers that be, as well as being brilliant, did extremely well. They won loads of TV awards all over the world and they got extremely good ratings. So, obviously, commissioning editors at all the TV channels went, Right, weird is good. What have we got in the pile? So, you know, after that, you got. You know, he kind of got a spate of increasingly bizarre and increasingly dark dramas, and he had things like Deadhead with dennis lawson i suppose tutti fruity almost fits in this because that was kind of odd it wasn't so dark but then in 1987 you had loads of these things you had upline on channel 4 which was one of howard Schumann's last things that he wrote for tv which had neil pearson joining a pyramid selling scheme and oh getting- yes <laughs> getting involved in all kinds of uh corruption and kind of There was a a sort of evangelical tone to it, and eventually he ended up, as I recall, sort of clambering around like a plastic adventure playground with Hugh Laurie. There was Brond, which was set in Glasgow, and it had Stratford John's... Pushing gingerhead children off bridges and then making prostitutes stick that's cattle prod up his ass while John Hanna sort of stared at him making a face like a goldfish. Then he had Boogie Outlaws on the BBC, which was how best to describe that. It was it, it was like a cross between Threads and Never Too Young to Rock. It was set in a very kind of seriously delineated future dystopia, you know, where gangs of uh, helmeted riot police patrolled in you know pat wagons and people warmed their hands under concrete. Underpasses over braziers. It was 1987, so it was pre. It kind of predicted the um, damn what was it called? The uh, the Repetitive Beats Act. What was its actual name?
0: Oh, the Criminal Justice Act.
1: Yeah, it predated the Criminal Justice Act by a couple of years, but it was it was basically the never too young to rock scenario. <laughs> where music has been outlawed, and so these renegade bands have to sort of hide from the authorities. Last in the year and possibly least was Body Contact, which is this very, very weird kind of thriller in which uh, I've, got, I've, got, uh, I've got to realise I've got to summarise the plot now and I don't think I can. Basically, Jolie Richardson doing this bizarre kind of almost alo French accent was, I think, a European ballet dancer. I don't know if she had some kind of secret or some kind of link to the mafia. But she had to escape from the Mafia and get out of the country A guy called Rico Ross played the hero who is a taxi driver Who kind of just falls into it and, and decides to help her get out And then it just throughout that they kind of go from various kind of set piece to set piece And each one has a musical number So you've got Timothy Spool and Chris Fulford Who some people may remember as the uh, the green-haired punk in Sorry I'm a Stranger Here Myself <laughs> Who played two kind of neo-Nazi mercenaries who uh, just basically tooled around Hackney with, openly with submachine guns, just kicking people's heads in. Jack Shepherd, the very respected actor who was in lots of great dramas like, uh, you know, Bill and Through the Night and stuff like that and All Good Men. He played a, a sadomasochistic, corrupt, rapping, hand-gliding priest in one scene. I I don't know if that ended up on his CV, but it's one of the most memorable things I've seen him in. Oh yeah, Harry Fowler plays like uh, a kind of retired cray brother kind of gangland sort of kingpin who sings a country and rest and song where, where the lyrics go i skinned a man with a potato peeler but i never made love to christine keeler but the thing i didn't realize at the time because actually at the time i was kind of uh, it was one of those programs that i kind of watched while flicking to another channel because it was on a sunday night so i didn't want to miss spitting image and I think also at the same time, Did You See were covering It's Gary Shandling show. So I kept flicking over this kind of, so I kind of saw it piecemeal originally. The thing about it was these musical numbers were written by quite famous people. The Timothy Spall number was um, co-written by Martin Ware. He was in uh, Heaven 17 and the Human League. Joe Callis from the Human League did another song. And the, the Harry Fowler Country Reston song was written by Cathal um, Cothlin and Sean O'Hagan. So it's technically like a mock producer. Really? Yeah. It's a lost micro Disney number song by <laughs> Harry Fowler.
0: Well, as well as that, it was, I didn't know it until recently. It was directed by Bernard Rose, who directed a number of really iconic pop videos in the 80s. I mean, he did Small Town Boy for Bronski Beat. He did a couple of the Frankie ones, including Two Tribes. And, of course, he did Red, Red Wine for UB40, which, as much as I might like to take the piss out of it, you know, the idea of a black-and-white video where they knock some wine over and suddenly it's red... That at least stays in your memory. But this, it just seems about as convincing, about as related to the pop scene as that kind of Italo house theme Vimto ad that there was around then.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's kind of, I think a lot of the criticism at the time said this must be the end now of TV drama trying to be like music videos. But I mean, it's interesting you mentioned Frankie Goes to Hollywood because the Jack Shepard scene where Jolie Richardson goes into his church because they're trying to get a false passport from him because he's this corrupt kind of priest stroke kind of gangland boss. And, you know, Jack Shepard is there doing this rap about how he's religion man. And he's really corrupt and he doesn't care. You know, it's it's all very subtle satire. It's exactly like a kind of Frankie goes to a little Russ you know, maybe a Russell Mulcahy kind of video because you have two uh, people of restricted growth painted red as, as kind of devilish imps following jack shepherd around you have lots of people pretending to be suffering from some kind of illness or disability so he can kind of bless them and give them a commute, communal wafer and then they can go away kind of going oh i've been cured and things like that yeah it's very much a kind of video of the frankie you know two tribes mold but you know is as, as a little set piece in this drama and it's just it's just such a weird thing. The thing about it is, as well, it was it originally scheduled to come out sometime in September in 1987. But then, unfortunately, in, in late August of 1987, certain events happened in the market town of Hungerford. And then, obviously, a couple of days after that, they found out that the guy responsible owned a Rambo video. And then instantly the entire TV industry in Britain went into complete panic mode and started pulling anything that might have a gun for the next few weeks. Body contact was going to come out in the middle of September. Eventually it was postponed to like uh, sort of early December, I think. Yeah, it was a victim of that kind of very kind of concentrated but acute miniature moral panic that kind of happened then. Because loads of films were kind of pulled,
0: weren't they? There were, and there was also on TV, there was the Marksman, which is that weird gangland thing that had Craig Charles in a straight acting role in it, pre-Red Dwarf. I think that was shunted to the next year. And there was Knights of God, the TVS thing, where... Nice I don't yeah. think they could really move that. So they tried their hardest to hide it as much as they could. It was on at some stupidly early time on the Sunday, wasn't it? Yeah, it, it was. It was very much played down. It was
1: Sunday tea time, wasn't it? Which is a really odd slot to put that in, yeah. Black Christmas they were going to show. BBC One were going to show that a couple of days after the massacre happened. Obviously, they pulled that. But rather brilliantly, they replaced it with, Ooh, you are awful. <laughs> A Dick Embry film, where he has, to, he has to gain access to a Swiss bank account by going around looking at various women's bottoms.
0: <laughs> Even that's not quite as good, although this is far less tasteful. When something similar happened a couple of years later, the upshot of which was BBC Two pulled an episode of The Smell of Reeves and Mortimer. I can't remember which one or why they did, but they replaced it with Ripping Yarns, Tomkinson's School Days. Now... There's something that happens in that that was not quite aligned with the news that day.
1: What, pupils being nailed to the wall?
0: No, it's where he escapes from school and says, thankfully I was shot. Oh, right. <laughs> yeah. Let's move on from that. I just want to say it very quickly about Rico Ross. It's really strange because around that time... He was everywhere for about 18 months, because he was in Aliens, he's the lift attendant of the Jeeves and Worcester, he was in the Doctor Who story, "Greater show in the galaxy, as a rapping ringmaster, and then he sort of disappears. I hope it wasn't on the back of body contact. <laughs> yeah, I've kind, of, I've,
1: I've kind of looked it up, and now every, just loads of people involved with it, kind of. It was written by a guy called Lee Drysdale, who doesn't appear to have done anything else much. So, you know, I don't know if that was going to be his big break, and just people went i don't know about this it's, it's, it's just this very strange time it's one of those times when drama went a bit mad and sort of went oh sorry about that i don't know what i was doing
0: well if we're talking about tv going a bit off script being responsible for programs and people disappearing from history i dread to think quite what your next choice had done <laughs> from a TV show that even I am not quite certain of what the exact title was. So, Phil, what was Oscar the Rabbit in Rubbage, as I think it was properly called?
1: Yeah, I'm not entirely sure, because it's always billed as just Oscar. But as you say, I think the title is Oscar the Rabbit in Rubbage, although I think, I think there was a later series called Oscar and the Great Woofaroo, just to confuse things even more. This was a very weird thing that was kind of shown initially over like the Easter holidays in back in 1977, and it constitutes, I'm pretty sure, my formative TV memory. It was this Weird little kind of 10-stroke, 15-minute puppet adventure. But it was done in that weird kind of... It's done in the Black Theatre style, which basically means the puppeteers perform in front of Black Velvet. They're they're covered head-to-toe in Black Velvet, and they kind of lift the puppets around. So there's this kind of odd weightlessness to them, which was a little bit unnerving. It kind of involves... The the rabbit of the title, who is kind of innocently playing on a swing at the start in his his garden, I presume, and then he just falls down the dustbin into the land of rubbish, which is this kind of weird, almost Alice in Wonderland, but slightly more disturbing kind of environment where uh, he, he befriends a dragon and a knight. And he kept being chased with a view to being eaten by this pterodactyl who was called Ganaches, whose main shtick was he had various sets of false teeth of differing levels of fierceness, which he kept on a washing line, which he would go out and then talk to. It was one of those things that's kind of pleasant in a kind of sort of pleasant children's young, very young children's fantasy way and then just has these moments of kind of jarring, frightening bizarreness. Yeah, I can't remember much else about it. I think Lance Percival did the voices.
0: I believe so, but I can't determine where it was actually made, because there's not even any info on that. I've seen some indications that it might actually be South African and dubbed by Lance Percival for here, but oh right, but... I think seems to add up about any of the scant information that's out there about it.
1: No, I did come across like a trade advert where Time TV. Television claimed it for themselves. Now I don't know if they just bought it and redubbed it, which they probably would, because I don't think uh, at the time I don't think Tyne Tees would have been like a major player. It was like a Trident Television trade advert, so it's Tyne Tees in Yorkshire. And their two featured programmes were Oscar, The Rabbit in Rubbage, and Wild Alliance. And the tagline was Oscar Wild. Oh,
0: no. <laughs> but the fact that
1: that's one of the programmes that they're selling to, like, the rest of the network was interesting, to say the least. You know, this thing that came was just shown on, like, you know, Easter stroke summer holiday mornings at about 11 o'clock.
0: Well, it is weird how very few of the ITV children shows of this kind, even the ones at lunchtime, seem to be that well remembered, given that I think they all had twice the episode count of the BBC ones so you would see them a lot more but things like the learning tree where it was that tree with sort of CSO Les Dawson face would sing songs Topper's Tales, which I think was based on an old comic strip, but it was sort of it was like P.G. Woodhouse would be written by Thies Van Leer, but they don't get remembered anywhere near as much as the BBC ones do, and I think Oscar might be the ultimate forgotten about one, because have you ever encountered anyone else who remembers it?
1: No, I haven't actually, and it's its one of those things, there's nothing has ever kind of surfaced on it. I've found one publicity picture of like the, the three main puppets, sort of Plonked on
0: a table, looking at each other. There was a jigsaw that's on eBay at the moment. There
1: was a jigsaw which seems to have the, exactly the same pictures <laughs> put into some kind of scenario. But yeah, no, you know, no kind of footage from it is ever kind of. I
0: suppose 1977 is too early to kind of hope.
1: But it was one. It was one of those things that was never quite networked. It was on various kind of ITV channels at various times.
0: You follow it round the listings in the back of looking. <laughs>
1: along with, like, the flying kiwi.
0: And there was a lot of that sort of puppetry around then, because I remember particularly, you used to get it in interludes in Rainbow, where it'd always be caterpillars for some reason, and some music that sounded like Half the Man by Jamiroquai. (laughs) And the, the rise and fall of that kind of puppetry is quite odd, really, because... I can't see any reason why it was suddenly so proliferate and then suddenly not again.
1: No, I don't know, because it's uh, it's interesting because I always thought it would be it was the same people each time. But it wasn't because, like, you know, uh, uh, things like Oscar were done by uh, mainly by a woman called Lindy Wright, who ran this little puppet theatre in Islington, you know, where they do where they do this kind of black velvet stuff. And then they got onto TV doing it and I think she might have done the the Rainbow ones as well because uh, I think Ronnie LeDrew who was a Rainbow puppeteer worked at the theatre. Then you had, totally unrelated, there was Norman Beardsley who did Itsy and Bitsy, the spiders in deeper play who were another kind of thing. Then you had, I, I think... There were two blokes who made a kind of splinter group from Lindy Wright's group who went on to do Playboard and um, Button Moon and things like that. Oh,
0: that was the Playboard puppets.
1: And then there was the Black Velvet Theatre of Prague... (laughs) Grandest <laughs> sounding ones. That sounds like a murder mystery. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, but they did the little puppet interludes on Once Upon a Time with uh, Peter Davison you know, reading a story and that kind of thing. So, yeah, they were like these different kind of factions all doing the same, you know, all dressing up head to toe in kind of black velvet and manipulating these puppets. But, yeah, they all had this same. It's just that kind of the way, you know, they uh, the puppets would kind of float because they could just be picked up and moved around at will. I think that was the thing that kind of stayed with me in a way kind of unnerved me slightly. This kind of gravity-defying oddness to them.
0: Okay, well, we're jumping forward with a decade in children's ITV, but not getting any less weird. Now, this is all that I could find of this show, which is astonishing when you can see how relatively recently it was on, and how prominent it was at the time. But anyway, let's just have a listen.
3: Because you know how it all began, don't you? There was nothing, there was nothing, and then something went hideously wrong. In the nothing, some little tiny error occurred. This little error got ever so hot and ever so heavy. It was smaller to begin with, smaller than the head of a pin. In fact, it was so small, it was dimensionless. But this little horror got so hot and so heavy that it just, kaboom, it blasted out. And that's an expanding universe. And how long is it going to go on? Well, some say it will go on forever. In which case, I can tell you this, it's going to get very cold indeed. In fact, the universe will wind up as a a kind of ice monument to its own ludicrousness for ever having come into business in the first place.
0: Okay well that was the unmistakable voice of Ken Campbell in. Now I know you all think it was Erasmus Microman it was actually Erasmus Microman. So Phil tell us more about this.
1: Yes yes Erasmus Microman we must get it right. This was an ITV kids program around about 1988. It was one of those bizarre sort of semi-educational or at least intended at the, at the commissioning stage to be educational programs in probably I'd, I'd say the johnny ball sense in the bits in think again where he opens a cupboard, a pair of cupboard doors and lo and behold there he is himself by the miracle of cso dressed as archimedes running through a little in-character routine about his discoveries and it was kind of that but instead of Johnny Ball, you had Ken Campbell in character as, with slightly weird appropriateness, a kind of Doctor Who figure. His companions, if we're going to keep with the Doctor Who kind of comparison, were two kids who I think would be watching TV and then Ken Campbell would appear, beckoning them into the television set, which is terrifying enough. itself and so they'd be brought into you know you know this kind of tv realm and he would take them back in time to meet someone like socrates or uh newton or galileo usually played by steve steen as i recall and and, uh, yeah they would talk to him about his scientific discoveries and i think there'd be a bit of political context as well because there was they got into the whole discussion of galileo being pursued by the catholic church and things like that it was semi-educational but I think at the time, uh, you know, it was a time when I was definitely becoming too old to watch these children's programmes, but I still did, you know. There wasn't quite the, the student layer of irony by that time, but, you know, it was just out of sheer sort of laziness. You know, I should have been doing something else, but I thought, well, yeah, I'll watch this. I think it was probably the first time when I really sort of became aware of Ken Campbell as an entity, because I'd obviously seen him in things like Faulty Towers. And just think, oh yeah, that's that's a good sort of turn. I would definitely have seen. Was it the first Secret Policeman's Ball? Yes, it was. Yes, there is um like you know pulling a member of the audience's trousers down, and Sylvester McCoy clamber[s] over the audience and hammers a nail up his nose, and they do all the standard <laughs> stuff. And isn't there a moment in that where they get what I assume must be the giant inflatable whale that he'd commissioned to advertise his musical of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the <laughs> Galaxy? Don't they push that on the audience and the audience <laughs> kind of push it around? Well,
0: that, that's reusing your props. I mean, that's like Richard Herring once told me that, you know, in the in Ian News and Fist of Fun, mm. where they have newsy Ian Paisley, who's apparently <laughs> the news Bunny, And I'd always wondered how did... The budget stretched to making a one-off enormous Ian Paisley costume. And it turned out that they just said it as a joke and the producer said, oh, we have one of those for the Friday Night Armistice. (laughs) (laughs) So so there was was an off-the-peg Ian Paisley. (laughs) But yeah, the Ken Campbell Roadshow, just a slight digression. I've always wanted to know, on a clip show once... I saw literally a subliminal clip of what must have been BBC Two, an actual Ken Campbell Roadshow set with their name all over it, with Ken Campbell and David Rappaport hitting Sylvester McCoy with planks of wood. And it was about three seconds. I've always wanted to know what that is, and I've searched high and low for it and not been able to find it. But that does bring us into Ken Campbell was a really weird figure to be on kids' TV, wasn't he?
1: I know. He obviously had an appeal to to kids, because he had that kind of anarchic presence. But yeah, on many other levels he was absolutely terrifying to especially small children.
0: Do you know that he was turned down for Doctor Who almost immediately before Rasmus Microman started?
1: Am I right in thinking that it was it got down to like a two way thing between him and Sylvester McCoy?
0: Yeah, and a lot of people saw his audition and thought Whoa. <laughs> Which I can, I can well believe. I can imagine he probably wouldn't have wanted to interpret the role in a friendly way.
1: No, they had probably thought, yeah, Tom Baker was one thing, but this is. That's obviously one of those kind of. History could have gone a completely different direction. God knows what would have happened to Doctor Who then. But I've seen a couple of sources stating
0: that one of the kids in the series was Naomi Harris. <laughs> this Well,
1: it's entirely possible, yeah. Bloody hell. One of those coincidences that sounds like it could easily of Lee be true. But yeah, I've I've got no idea, no.
0: I've got to say, though, I mean, there is kind of, there's a resurgence of interest in Ken Campbell again, which is always a good thing. But they skirt over things like this. Um, I've seen remember he was involved in CBTV, that children's ITV magazine show. You know, there were a number of things that he did because they kind of, they kind of demean the purity of his offbeat stage work and so on that aren't being mentioned. Yeah. And I think it's all part of the story.
1: The idea of his stage work having a kind of purity, anyway. You know, it was probably you <laughs> would have agreed with it at all but yeah you know the otherwise brilliant Michael Coveney biography of him doesn't mention it at all really no it doesn't it doesn't it, it, you know it mentions the Doctor who standoff thing and you know but there's no mention of Erasmus microman happening at all well it, it, it's a it's it's a good book so I don't you know that yeah, yeah. to read it but it, it kind of reminds me at the time I plowed through the collected letters of Kingsley Amos to try and find a mention of Kingsley Amos goes pop and and <laughs>
0: That's why we need the Fred Emney diaries. (laughs) Well, we're talking odd, but nothing really in the entire history of human Endeavour has been odder than your final choice. Uh, Here's the trailer for it.
3: Don't say we didn't warn you about a motion picture that is definitely not for everyone. Can Erronimus Merkin ever forget Mercy Hump and find true happiness? Extremely sensuous and revealing. It took Playboy magazine ten pages to show it all. They called it a zany erotobiography, the wackiest film yet. This picture is exactly what it pretends to be. Exciting, realistic, and so natural that it makes blow up look like Shirley Temple in Little Miss Marker, wrote Los Angeles Herald Examiner. A hair-raisingly candid film, erotic epic, Newsweek, a sort of what's new pussycat brought up to today's level. Filmed in the new style, slick cinema, bright wit, satiric barbs, judith chris new york magazine merkin is a ribald yeasty movie detroit news extra care is taken at this theater so that nobody under the age limit posted in lobby will be admitted can eronymous merkin ever forget mercy hump and find true happiness Right, I'm going to try, I can never say this right, we're
0: going to try and say the title of this. I know this film only too well. Phil, tell us more about Can Hieronymous Make Never Forget Mercy Hump and Find True Happiness?
1: Oh God, we, we had to end on this one, didn't we?
0: Yes, we did. Mighty. <laughs> Yeah, uh, in
1: in a neat way, this links back to Fox, because this is another thing that I kind of discovered by degrees. I originally, it, it must have been in the early 80s again, where most things kind of tend to happen for me. I saw this clip of this bizarre film. So ever since I was really young, I've always been attracted, for some bizarre reason, to films that don't look like conventional films. You know, there's something weird in the way that it's set out or the way that it proceeds. Later on, I'd sit through every single Peter Greenway film just because they were different. You know, as I recall it, it was on the black and white portable in the spare room. It was one of those things. It was just this guy on a beach somewhere dressed as a clown talking to the camera. And then suddenly this miniature stage appears on the beach with like a, a, a piano and like a kind of backdrop. And then suddenly this guy appears doing a tap dance and then I realise it's Bruce Forsyth. Bruce Forsyth in a magician's cape and a top hat. And then I look again and it's Bruce Forsyth in a magician's cape and a top hat on stilts. And then he <laughs> goes into the elaborate kind of song about how, oh, you sh- he, he's singing to this guy who who is Anthony Newley, who I had no idea then, who is just stood there as like this pathetic clown going, oh, you know, doing the whole sort of, doing the whole Punchinello number, not in, not, not in the John Walters sense. So he goes into this routine about, oh, the, the theatre, she's a mistress, she's a whore, don't get involved, but it's wonderful, the smell of the grease paint, et cetera, et cetera. And then he goes into this kind of elaborate kind of, soft shoe shuffle number, clasps at his heart, and then he keels over dead and like the you know, Anthony Newley's in his clown outfit is applauding, and then this tulip lip comes out of Bruce Forsyth's stomach, and then Anthony Newley stops applauding and realizes that he's dead. Now that's all I remember. It's possible because I, I I kind of did a bit of research to see when this could have been shown. The only record of the film being shown on British TV I can see was was on BBC two in nineteen seventy five which is far too early for me to have seen. So I might have just seen that scene on some kind of clip show, or it might have been one of those films that they put on when there's a strike and I've got nothing else to say. <laughs> yeah, so I saw that thing, and that was just this bizarre thing that was you know, I didn't really I didn't know if it was a cinema film if it was a TV thing if it was a play for today what the hell it was a few years later than that I became aware of the title via give us a clue because I think Eunice Stubbs had to perform it it was one of those oh we're at the end of the series let's give the captain something ridiculously long and see how far they get I don't know what Lionel Blair I think he probably got the persecution and assassination of uh, Jean-Paul Marat as performed by the inmates of the Asylum of Charenton under the direction of the Marquis de Sade which I can <laughs> recite only because I did a film course at exactly the wrong time of year so I became aware of this weird clip and this bizarrely bit titled film that, and I didn't associate the two until when I was a student and I was staying at this house in Portsmouth that had this kind of pioneering kind of cable service I can't remember what the channels were called they were some own brand kind of combination of the UK TV and Granada Breeze and something like that and you know it was in the middle of the night I sort of came out and, oh, God, done. it was the flick on the TV and, you know, this thing was scheduled next. And I thought, oh, great. I'll finally get to see this bizarre film title that I rent from Give Us a Clue. And so I'm watching it and it opens on a beach. And I think, God, this is familiar. Where's this come from? And then before long, the Bruce Forsyth scene comes around and it's, I know, I know it's sort of an overused thing to talk about Proustian kind of ruchy. but it was just this intense thing of bloody hell. I've been sort of transported back kind of 20 years to when I first saw this thing and it was quite amazing. And then I saw the rest of the film. <laughs> God, it's a horrible thing. It's really, you, you don't realize how, it's weird and it's unpleasant as well. It's just an awful film because it's basically Anthony Newley. He's about to hit, you know, he's about to hit middle age and he's just making this self justifying film sort of to, you know, do, just going over his life. He's, he ropes Joan Collins in, who's his, Just about still his wife, soon to be ex-wife, to play his own wife in these various scenes. and She does not look like she's having a good time. He ropes in their children as well, who definitely aren't having a good time. Patricia Hayes is in it, who looks like she doesn't really care what's going on. And then you've got various... American comedy luminaries, you know, you've got like George Jessel. Yeah, you've got the the very sort of, you know, kind of old school American uh, Jewish comedians who kind of appeal as themselves but in symbolic roles because it's all very sort of he's being Fellini or, you know, Bergman or something like that, doing this kind of very sort of self-aware thing. Victor Spinetti turns up as a critic because they have the, they have these three critics who basically are watching the film as it's being made. And sort of say, oh, this is a load of masturbatory self-gratification, you know, just sort of in that kind of sort of cheating. Oh, if I put in the criticisms now, that will diffuse them away. Then it just descends into like a catalogue of Anthony Newley's libido and it gets rather dark because there's there's one bit where he's sat on a hillside and he just looks at the camera and basically admits front and centre to being a shag about misogynist. You know, just sort of going, hey, you know, I hate women, but what can you do? And then there's this other really, really nasty bit where he basically admits to his fondness for underage girls, apparently to his own kids. I presume not literally, but, you know, that's how it's cut in the film. And, you know, obviously it's 19, this film was made in 1969, so that kind of thing was still seen as acceptable in some way. But, yeah, no, it, it gets very dark, and then it gets very silly at the same time. And it's just these odd, I mean, you know, it's like if body contact was a kind of mismatch of tones, this one just smushes them all together in this kind of mixture of, like, horrible and whimsical at the same time and yeah it's it's a story of a kind of vague nostalgic memory that was then recovered but it's also the story of this awful bloody film
0: it really is i've seen it once I don't think I can see through it again. No. I think it's telling that Anthony Newley sort of bookends the 60s with, I think that's from 1969. Mm. And it's an overlong, overindulgent mess. And right at the start of the 60s, he, I'm sure a lot of people listening will have seen this by now, but it did he series called The Strange World of Gurney Slade. Which is very concise, very on the nose, just ripping apart the whole convention of, you know, television and entertainment. He actually wrote, I found recently, an article in TV Times defending it from critics called Tear Up the Script. Which just talking about, you know, you're being force fed this bland entertainment every day. Mm. And, I, you know, I'm saying as weird sitcom, hey, I'm a star trying to get out of it, but I can't walk off the edge of TV. And, you know, there's all kinds of weird things in it, like he goes on trial for not putting enough jokes in it. There's a a kid says, ah, I'm not watching TV, you're on, that sort of thing. And what went wrong between those two extremes? And, you know, he did all kinds of other interesting stuff, like he did that record with Delia Derbyshire, which never came out from the Radiophonic Workshop, where it's kind of like Soft Cell, but 20 years earlier. What possessed anyone involved in that film to get involved with it at all, including him? I just don't understand it.
1: It's like you say. It's like the strange world of Gurney Slade is weird and undeniably self-indulgent, but it's it's fun. You know, it's good-natured. It's you know, it's this it's this thing that you can still enjoy now. Yeah, Hieronymus Merkin is not so much fun. It's just this. Yeah, it's it's, it's this this sound of like somebody just sort of coming to some kind of existential despair you have these whimsical songs what's what's the one chalk and cheese which is basically do you get into my horoscope you charming ineffable lovable dope well you know so you've got these sort of whimsical elaborate lyrics and at the same time just this dark and increasingly unpleasant and lewd undertone to the whole thing so yeah it's it's kind of like the late 60s in a nutshell. <laughs>
0: well, I'm a huge apologist for terrible films, you know, particularly terrible British films in that sort of era. I, mean, I remember once there's a film called The Magnificent Seven Deadly Sins, which is basically they just threw every comedy writer in the UK at a wall and sort of a script came out of it. When that came out on VHS in the late 90s, Stephen O'Brien, who's been a guest on this previously cut out a review of it from i can't was it maybe from empire but he underlined a bit where you know it gave it naught out of 10 and it said if a film about bruce forsyth going into the sewers the retriever lost 50 <laughs> pence piece is for you watch this film and he underlined it and wrote yes exclamation <laughs> <laughs> oh. mark so me and everyone i know kind of love films like that but i just cannot stand this
1: no well it's t- I i mean Like the Magnificent Seven Deadly Sins, which in parts is fantastic, you know, the Spike Milligan section is brilliant a sloth doesn't he as a deadly sin and he does it as this demented sort of cut up of silent movie parodies but that that's very much maybe with one or two edits that's kind of wet sunday afternoon on itv kind of acceptable but there's this other kind of weirdness that you wouldn't you never saw on tv although you probably did when channel 5 went through its early phase of desperate to fill space so they'd show things like They'd show The Rise and Rise of Michael Rimmer They'd show um, Rhinoceros uh- okay. <laughs> <laughs> Wilder and Zero Mostel <laughs> adaptation of the Ionesco play <laughs> and Godspell as well was on a lot.
0: Can you keep it up for a week? The show. <laughs> oh,
1: yeah, yeah, they got into that. They once they discovered that that got you know some guaranteed viewers. They, you know, <laughs> they mined that for all it was worth. But yeah, they, just that kind of period. It, I, I think you're right. It's got late sixties going into the seventies, where you know I guess the you still had the E. D. Tax, which was when successful British films had to plough a certain amount of money into the Exchequer, which was then redistributed to fund unsuccessful British jobs. So, you know, <laughs> you, you, you had all these things like uh, a Wonderwall. Bloody hell. Which I don't, I don't know how many Oasis fans, when that came out on DVD, have thought, oh, I wonder what this is about.
0: I hope it's all of them. <laughs> I hope, to, hope they still own it and could never get rid of it. <laughs> Wonderwall is just... its I'm pretty sure that
1: Anthony Newley had a script, even though it doesn't look like it has. But Wonderwall is one of those things where they probably just had the back of a napkin and a few sentences. <laughs> <laughs> they suddenly got some money and thought, "Oh God, we got to, we got to film 90 minutes." We're going to do.
0: <laughs> and of course, it's got that George Harrison soundtrack, which is as weird as you like and then fast forward what was it 30 years when they were doing anthology and he wouldn't allow Carnival of Light the legendary unreleased Beatles electronic track to be on because he said avant-garde means avant-garde a clue
1: bloody hell that, that's a r- about face isn't it
0: it's, it's real sort of principal skinner you've been called the funny one material as well <laughs> but yeah Wonderwall for years that was one of the top films on my must-see films wish list and, and then he's... I kind of wish I hadn't seen it now
1: I mean is it worth describing it even it's a very slight thing isn't it it's jack McGowan is a kind of sort of absent-minded professor who lives in a flat next door to jane birkin who's this kind of fashion model and he just becomes obsessed with her and sort of starts skiving off work to spy on her and her sort of greedy mates through a hole in the wall all sorts of bizarre things happen from there when they realize that that's that's not a film's worth of business. They start fighting with each other with giant prop lipsticks, you know, and and dead mother appears in a wheelchair and starts talking to him. And then Irene Handel comes in with a hoover for a comedy routine and they just do endless whatever bits of business they can think of on the day.
0: Well, the mentioning Jane Birkin has just made me think of what's basically the French version of the film we were originally talking about, which is Chetamme. Oh, it's a dreadful film.
1: Mm, I can imagine it's yeah. Uh, mm.
0: Kind of like Anthony you, Serge Gunsborg is one of those people who people lose sight of the fact that he was good when he was constrained. Yeah. When he had limits, he had to work within. And when people just said, "Do what you want." Yeah.
1: No. Well, I mean, he did. He did various high concept kind of Broadway musicals, didn't he? Like, um, what was it the Roar of the Grease? Paint the smell of the crowd. <laughs> yeah. Like that, which you know, which which are very so, again it's like everyone plays a symbolic character that means that stands for some kind of concept or, you know, stage of somebody's life and things like that. But, you know, those were, those were popular and they won awards and they got punters in. So obviously whoever put up the money for this film thought, Oh, we will do the same in the summer. Uh, no he didn't
0: and it's still never been released on home media which I think says a lot I don't think it can be I think you'd have to trim <laughs>
1: away so much of it I'm surprised BBC2 managed to show it but it's it's best left where it is
0: and so ladies and gentlemen that means do not go and seek it out for yourselves Phil it's been absolutely brilliant thank you
1: oh great Tim
0: thanks very much <laughs> thinking about me by like Tim Worthington. A big book full of old articles giving a new twist looking at how and why I ended up on the BBC News channel with a big caption saying Clangers Expert. More details, TimWorthington.org.
2: I it's a jumble sale, she bought a dancing kick. But it sat down on its curly tail, I would not dance a jig. No, it would not dance a jig. A pig in a poke, that's what I've bought. i bought. bought. Of course, there is no doubt. It really makes me most distraught. In fact, I'm quite without. In fact, I'm quite without. Good woman, don't be cross now. Grunted the pig in delight Say rhymes for pig And then I bow to dance A jig all night Oh, I'll, I'll dance my jig all night Rhyming words for pig She said, Not so hard to find There's big, and jig And a wig And a twig Oh, what's that sprouting mind Oh, what's that to mind Oh, four is not enough, said Pig, if you wish to see me prance. For myself, I don't care a fig. If jigs, I never dance. Oh, with jigs, I never dance. You really are pig-headed, Pig. And the woman shrilly cried. If you won't dance, then buy my wig, I'll beat your piggy hide. I'll beat your piggy hide. I'll oh, never make it fly, Eight rhymes is all I ask. To make me dance, well, it's worth a try, not such a daunting task. No, it's not such a daunting task. Uh, well, I've already thought of big, no, dig, and wig, and twig. I just need four more. I'm um, a swig, a spring, fig, and, well, I know, a jig. He picked up and he danced about in a gay abandoned jig, And a woman laughed as never before to see the dancing pig Oh, to see the dancing pig! <laughs> Ah, you see, we're not such an old fool after all, here. I said you're not your old handle. do you say? <laughs> A glutton for punishment, that he.